Good evening. Welcome to the LSE for this event. Um, we should all switch off our mobiles. Such a polite um, cloud. Oh, <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> my name is Steve Pischke. Uh, this is Stephen Dubner, and to my far is Steve Levitt. I think of the three Steves here, I'm the only one who actually needs an introduction. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a professor of economics here at the London School of Economics, and I'm probably a fairly representative example of our breed. I go to my office, pretty much stay in the ivory tower, and don't talk much to people on the outside like you. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, every generation of economists does seem to have one or a few individuals who do go out and talk to the wider public. I'm thinking of uh, Milton Friedman 40, 50 years ago who wrote Capitalism and Freedom or Paul Krugman 20 years ago, The Age of Diminished Expectations. And then in my generation, it turned out to be Steve Levitt. If you'd asked me 15 years ago or so to predict who would be the best-selling author of my generation of economists, I probably wouldn't have picked him. <laughs> but I underestimated him. I didn't realize just how good an economist he was. He understood the division of labor. <laughs> so how did this project come about? Uh, so, uh, this, uh, so this project came about... Uh, it was many years in the making uh, back, what, six, seven years ago? Uh, I got a call from the New York Times Sunday Magazine asking me if, uh, if I would submit to having a profile done. And, and uh, like Steve, uh, I, I like to sit in my office and uh, not talk to people like you and uh, putter away on my computer. And so I was very hesitant to do it, but I have a rule of thumb which is uh, I try to make my mother happy. And uh, one of the things my mother likes is to see my name in the newspaper, especially newspapers that she naturally reads. And so as a consequence, uh, I submitted to uh, having uh, this article written about me. Now, Stephen will tell you his own story, but eventually he did come out to, to interview me. And he said he would be in Chicago. And uh, could he come and talk to me about the piece? And I said, sure. Um, uh, you're going to be here Wednesday. How about from, say, 11 to 12, uh, you can come and talk to me? Well, I'd, I'd hope for a little bit more, more time than that. And I said, okay, well, 10.30 to 12. And, uh, and, and he's, he's tactical and skilled. So uh, in response, he said, fine, 10.30 to 12. Uh, and then at 12 came, and he said, well, what are you doing for lunch? And I said, okay, you can, you can come along to lunch. And then after lunch, uh, he said, well, uh, what if I just sit here uh, in the afternoon? <laughs> And I said, I, I just want to see what your day is like. And I said, well, unfortunately, I'm going to go into my office. I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to type at a keyboard uh, doing data analysis for the rest of the afternoon. I'm not going to talk to a single person. He said, oh, it's okay. I'll just come and, come and watch. Uh, now, the problem is when there's a reporter from the New York Times, you just have to be nice to them. You don't have any choice because you, they have tremendous power to embarrass you. And so as much as I wanted him to leave and as much as I wanted him to sit quietly, when he would ask me questions, I felt obligated to answer those questions. And so this went on to the end of the day. And he said, well, this was really good, but, you know, I'm in town tomorrow as well. What if, uh, what if you pick me up at 9 a.m.? And I go, okay. And so uh, the next day, 
Uh, and at the end of the next day, you can guess what he said. Well, how about one more day? I'll just come and watch you. And it was excruciating, uh, but uh, but we did it. And eventually, uh, it led to the peace. But you tell, hear your side of the story. It's a little different uh, when you tell uh, this. Marginally story. different. Uh, we mostly disagree about how much we disliked each other at the outset. Because you say you dislike me intensely. I maintain you only dislike me moderately. <laughs> Um, and can I say, my, um, my children are here, and I just want to, Solomon and Anya, he, he didn't really hate me as much as he's pretending he does, and we've, we've always gotten along fine, so I don't want you to be alarmed. Um, so, um, uh, so writing about Levitt was, uh, you know, the beginning of this for me. I've been working on a separate book project um, that ended up in a drawer. It was a, um, a project uh, about what I call the, the psychology of money. And it was kind of about behavioral economics writ small and large. So behavioral economics on campuses in research and also how money plays this very fundamentally emotional role in people's lives. And I've been doing this research for about two years and spending a lot of time with a lot of economists who did work nothing like him who actually worked with money, the way we think of most economists working, whereas Levitt worked with you know, data from sumo matches and uh, looking through the, the names of all the babies born in California over the space of 30 years, trying to determine if your first name had any influence on the way your life was uh, unraveling, and all these things that had nothing to do with what most people think of as economics. And when the Times asked me to write about him, I, I turned it down. I turned the assignment down a few times, actually, um, in part because the biggest reason they wanted me to write about him was because he just won a, an award, which was a John Bates Clark Medal, which is within academic economics a really big deal. Uh, it, it's considered kind of the, the junior Nobel Prize, but economists being such masters of scarcity as they are, since it used to be awarded only every two years, they would infer that it was even more valuable than the Nobel Prize, and, and it can be shared. So the reason I didn't want to write about him was at the time was because most people, after they win an award like that, they start to get all awardy and do things that uh, are not so pleasant. And also, usually they win an award for what they've done in the past. And as a writer, you want to write about what's going on in the future. So as it turned out, I was going to be in Chicago anyway, as Levitt said, and I decided to download all his papers from the Internet and read them. And they were these bizarrely fascinating papers about sumo wrestling and baby names and and uh, estate agents and things like that. And so I decided to, you know, visit. And uh, maybe I did mask a little bit how much time <laughs> I wanted to spend with you. And, um, and I remember calling my wife from Chicago after the end of the first day and saying that uh, I don't know if anyone in the world at all is going to care at all about this article, but I'm going to really enjoy writing it. Because as a journalist particularly, events are one thing and trends are one thing but ideas are something else entirely and Levitt really trafficked in ideas that were, were really thrilling as a writer who'd spent all this time around economists whose ideas were very different so I set about to write this article and it was a long thing of five or eight thousand words in the New York Times magazine and it was coming out in the in the beginning of August which is I just thought this article is going to be the biggest dud in the history of journalism because it's an eight-page article about an academic economist who's researching sumo wrestlers and estate agents, and it's coming out right when people go to the beach and want to read something other than economics. And so my feeling that it was going to be a total dud was reinforced when, the morning the article was published, the first phone call I got, and the only phone call I got until much, much later, was from Levitt's mom. <laughs> Back in Minneapolis, St. Paul, wanting to thank me for treating her boy fair. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, that was the biggest waste of time ever on earth. And uh, unfortunately, I was uh, wrong. 
and, well, so there's one last, so, so then how'd the book come? So we haven't gotten how the, the book came from. So, so then a, a lot of people loved the portrayal of, of what Stephen described, which was uh, hi, largely fictional, the way he uh, characterized me. Because, you know, the way it seemed, if you read this article about me, is that, you know, someone comes to me with a problem and I, I stare off into space a little, I type a little on the computer and, and something scratch incredible. Your head. Yeah, scratch your head. And, uh, and some incredible solution comes to me and I solve the problem, which, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. But, but it was an enticing kind of... Um, uh, metaphor for what economists do. And among the people who came to uh, uh, approach me uh, were publishers saying, well, do you want to write a book? And what I said to them every time was, look, go read five of my academic papers, and if you still want me to write a book, come back. Okay. And so that was a good way to deter them. But I think someone smarter than me thought of the fact, well, Dubner has already created this persona about you. Why don't you two get together and try to write a book together? And honestly, neither of us really were that excited about doing it. But, <laughs> but, um, but the thing, the thing about economists is uh, it's all eventually about prices, right? So for the right price, economists will do anything, right? It's just you've got to get to that price. Turns out the same is true of journalists. Uh, the right price. <laughs> And luckily, it turned out we had about the same price, and uh, and the publishers were willing to pay more than that price, uh, and uh, and we ended up writing this 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 book. Well, I say beforehand. So, you know, uh, when I told my my parents uh, about how we're going to write this book, my father actually interceded and he said, "It's immoral to write that book. I don't want you to write it." I said, "Immoral? Uh, what what's immoral about? Immoral about it?" He said. No one wants to read about the ridiculous things that you study. It's immoral to take the money from the publishers when you know that you're not going to sell any popular books. <laughs> and I said, I know no one's going to read the book, but that does not make it immoral to take the publishers' money. I mean, if they can't figure it out for themselves, that's not my problem. But anyway, we wrote the book, and much to our surprise, and I think the publishers' surprise as well, uh, uh, a lot of people wanted to read the Did book. Did we answer your question at all? I think that was the answer. That last sentence yeah. was the answer to yeah. the question. <laughs> In terms sure. of the actual division of labor, uh, it's very straightforward. Um, he does nouns and adjectives. I do verbs and adverbs. And we fight, <laughs> we fight viciously over the prepositions. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So, <laughs> In this original uh, New York Times piece that you told us about, you called uh, Levitt the economist of odd questions. What's odd about the questions? Is it just that they're about sumo wrestlers and real estate agents, or are they odd in other ways? Uh, we, I could answer the question first, unless you want to answer it. Go first. ahead. So I remember what made me really want to write this piece. Um, so I've been talking with him on the phone a bit, because you do have to call up someone and say, if I, if I can come out there and write a piece about you, are you willing to have a piece written? Because obviously not everyone would, would acquiesce. And, um, and I was working on some article for the Times, uh, for the New York Times at the time, that was about young inheritors and how, um, how, how certain inheritors of a certain age and a certain generation get all this money from their parents who were mostly World War II era folks who'd, who'd made a lot of money, leave it to the next generation. And then that next generation kind of often got lost and didn't know how to feel like they deserved it. They didn't know how to spend it responsibly and stuff like this. And there was, was then and, and is now pending legislation on uh, what we call the estate tax or the death tax, um, you know, the, the taxation upon a parent's death. And uh, I was talking to Levitt um, on the phone kind of, I don't know, a few, a few times during this time about writing this piece. And I said, by the way, I'm working on this other piece, and I just wonder if I could pick your brain for a minute. Because you're an economist at the University of Chicago, 
and you're one of the few economists I'm talking to on a daily basis right now, and I wonder if you could give me a few thoughts on the estate tax. And I just hear this long silence, and then finally says, well, you're, you're going to have to ask a real economist that question. I just have no idea. And I realize that any economist at the University of Chicago who would call himself not a real economist because he hadn't thought of that, because most economists that I'd interviewed would talk to you ad nauseum about anything. It didn't matter if they knew a thing about it. They would go on and on. And then what I realized is that his interests were actually much closer to what mine were as a writer, because I, you know, um, the questions that he asked in content were unusual, as you said, sumo and baby names and real estate and crime, a lot of things having to do with the, uh, the, the inputs that create kind of criminals and stuff. A lot of those were odd questions, but even more odd to me were the construct of those questions. In other words, it was a way of looking at the world that seemed much less like an academic economics researcher and more like a documentary filmmaker or a detective who's on someone's payroll who just kind of wanders around the world looking for threads to pull. And if you pull the thread just the right way, the whole thing may unravel. And once in a while, he had unra beautifully unraveled these mysteries. There were these pieces of detective work. Catch, uh, are you, am I embarrassing you by going on about... Uh, how great you are. But uh, um, the piece that I thought was just a, a great piece of deduction was uh, this piece about catching cheating school teachers in Chicago that was essentially he identified um, bad teachers, cheating teachers, by just using the test scores that their students had left behind and looking for patterns of ill behavior in their test scores. And so I thought, you know, that's, that's the kind of odd that I like and that I think could make really good stories. It was all about really telling stories. In some sense, though, the, the tools I use, uh, the questions are different, but the tools I use are absolutely standard among economists. So, you know, when Steve Pischke was my professor at MIT, it was exactly the kind of things that, that we were being taught about, you know, forming models, about uh, uh, thinking about incentives, about using data to, 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 to determine, you know, to tease out the difference between correlation and causality through the use of uh, natural experiments or, or, or what you might call accidental experiments. Uh, and, and I do have a funda fundamental belief in, in the power of, of economics. And, and there's another piece to it, too, that, that doesn't often get discussed directly, but which is really important, is that the economic approach really is not uh, kind of cast aside moralism. Uh, and, and many people, when you look at a question like abortion, uh, your mind immediately goes to, is it right or wrong? What are the moral implications? Okay, but only, I think, economists are able to look at abortion and say, well, abortion happened, so what was the impact on crime 20 years later? You kinda, if, if, you're, if you're kind of in an, a moral and an ethical uh, worldview, it puts blinders on thinking about how things really play out. And I think it really is the power of the economic way of thinking uh, which, uh, which enables people like myself and, and Steve Pinsky to, to tackle problems in, 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 a, in a way that uh, many others can't because of, uh, you know, being moral and ethical is not a bad thing, but it does get in the way of getting the answers to questions sometimes. <laughs> okay. Um, Steve certainly tackles lots more questions than, than I do. Um, I was wondering, you know, comparing Freakonomics to earlier books on economics, I was wondering, why is it so much fun? Economics is supposed to be the dismal science. And usually economics books, even popular ones, are somehow about weighty topics like globalization and inflation and depression. 
Is that what makes Freakonomics fun? Well, I think, I think two things. One thing is that economics books, even popular ones, are written by economists. Okay? And we talked about specialization in the division of labor. Economists do not get selected into being economists by virtue of being able to write. Okay? But, uh, and, and it's actually interesting how, why economists have been so slow to understand, even in the wake of the success of Freakonomics, uh, a lot of economists have responded by saying, if that guy Levitt can write a best-selling book, I'm going to write the best-selling <laughs> book of all time, right? I'm a much better economist than him. And yet, so there have probably been maybe 20 kind of copycat economics books. But not one of them I could think of was written with uh, a top... With me. With, with Stephen Dubner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that that... So that's part of it. Part of it is, is having someone who really knows how to write uh, is important. Uh, part of it is our joint belief that storytelling is not... A dirty word. Okay, among economists, the idea that you'll go and tell stories, it kind of seems kind of dirty and the wrong way to do it. But I've always believed that the way to get your point across uh, is with stories. And uh, I mean, you have to have the facts and the careful empirical analysis to back it up. But 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 embedding uh, this, embedding your work into stories has always been something that I've appreciated and that you, of course, as a, as a journalist, appreciate as yeah. well. And I think that's a big part of why our books are... So So when Krugman was writing about, you know, the next big depression or whatever, it was not embedded in narratives about, uh, you know, guys who were selling bagels, uh, you know, door-to-door uh, uh, -door and things like that. I mean, it was, it was really... It didn't have any of the natural things which are part of, um, kind of the way people... Um, enjoy consuming uh, ideas, I think. Yeah, plus I think there's the very obvious fact that it's a book about 50 or 100 different topics. Uh, there are short stories, there are long stories, there are short stories that are embedded in the longer stories. So we consciously didn't write a book that had one theme, like a lot of econo economics. So it's on the other hand, there were books that I really thought were fun, like Steve Landisberg wrote a couple books that I, you know, I think for an economist he writes very, very well, and you know, Slate uh, continually finds interesting economists who write, I think, very well um, about uh, their own interesting research and other people's interesting research. I, I'm a little bit more baffled as to why um, there, there haven't been um, there haven't been as many that are considered so much fun. Uh, I think a lot of it is luck, honestly. I think ours was, you know, honestly, we got very lucky for two, two, okay, so if there are three things that our book did well, we can claim no responsibility for two of them. So one is the actual book itself, which we did write, okay? But then there's the title, which seemed to really, so, so most people thought it was so terrible that it was actually good in the end. It was just so <laughs> memorably horrible that it became the, the, the title. And Levitt's sister came up with that. We couldn't come up with a title. Then there was the apple orange, which ended up being this really good identity. Oh, you don't know the apple orange. Oh, so uh, so apparently we're successful in Britain well, for the reasons paperback. other no, than no, I no, suspected. The, the cover of the paperback, because it hardly sold anything in hardcover. And then if you remember, the paperback had a cover that you never could have done in the United States. It's got like a gangster there and a, a pregnant lady smoking a cigarette or something, which had nothing to do with our book. I'm not sure what that had to do okay. with our book. Uh, it had the sumo wrestler. I mean, it, it was it was politically incorrect in just the right way. You know, and then there were the two bads, which were uh, apparently quite popular. And I think, again, here, a lot of the success was by coupling 
a, a title with an image with a book that once you read it, people kind of liked it. And they'd tell their friends that they liked it. And so if we could just get a few people to read it, it would be kind of in this sort of viral way managed to, to penetrate the psyches of, of people. But I think it is true. So luck is so, so fundamental. Uh, and, and, and people who have a little bit of success, rarely will they admit ex post that it was luck. Uh, but I, uh, my, my firm belief is that almost everyone who succeeds owes a great, great share of that success to, to luck. And, uh, and it's, it's in, in, whether it's in book writing or uh, sports or anything else, music especially. So I think we were, we just were in the right place at the right time as much as anything. So you mentioned the, that it's really just a bunch of stories. And Steve, you alluded to this too. So again, in this New York Times piece, uh, you, you're talking about this uh, episode when uh, Steve Levitt was 26, and you write about how he didn't have a theme in his research. So is Freakonomics still a collection of stories and pieces of research without a theme, or is there something that ties it together? Wait, before you answer that, let me tell that story, because this is about okay. luck. This is, about, this is a great example of luck. So I was, a, I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago. I mean, not, never mind. You can tell I'm tired. I've been, I, the time changes. I was a graduate student at MIT. And, uh, and I had, sure? that one I'm going to stand by. I was a graduate student at MIT. Uh, and so I had just had the incredible good fortune to have sent a paper to one of the top journals, the Journal of Political Economy, and gotten in the hands of an editor who, God knows why, accepted this paper to, to the JPE, uh, which was a very fortunate thing to happen. This happened right before I had an interview with something called the Harvard Society Fellows, which is this very exclusive academic club at Harvard. And in order to get into this club, uh, you have to go into a room where, sitting in a semicircle uh, around the room, are, are, I don't know, 20 of the most eminent scholars in the world, people like Amartya Sen, uh, and uh, Robert Nozick and you know, uh, very Bernard Bailey, very famous historians. It's uh, two or three Nobel Prize winning physicists. Okay, and you have no idea. And they just sit around in a semicircle and they bombard questions at you. And you have no idea what they're going to ask you. And you just do the best you can. You're just a kid. You know, you just know economics. But but there are all these different interdisciplinary questions. So I'm in there and they're bombarding the questions. And it's going pretty well until one of the historians says, "So what's your unifying theme?" And I had never once in my life ever thought about a unifying theme. And, I, uh, uh, and so I make up some incredibly dumb unifying theme. And, uh, and Amartya Sen intercedes and he says, no, 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 that's not, I don't think that's his unifying theme. His unifying theme is some completely other crazy thing that had no bearing on what I was actually doing. <laughs> and so I very enthusiastically, enthusiastically embraced that as my unifying theme. And so I said, no, no, I don't think that's his unifying theme. And, they, and, and there was another, you know, someone else gave another example. And, and the whole interview was basically going down the toilet and with this discussion of why I didn't have the right theme. And Robert Nozick interceded. Okay, and this is a guy, who, uh, the philosopher. I had nothing in common with him, but he had actually been one of my intellectual heroes, uh, although I'd never met him. And he just turns to me, and he says, how old are you? And I said, 26. I was glad to answer any question that didn't have to do with my unified thing. <laughs> <laughs> and he turned to the rest of the people, and he said, why are you bothering with the idea of a unifying theme? He's 26 years old. Who cares? Maybe he's just going to be the kind of person who flits around from thing to thing and never has a unifying theme. Let's get on with the interview and hear what he actually has to say. And I think that was that moment 
was a turning point because it really changed the nature of the interview. It allowed me to get this three-year, uh, basically a three-year position where the only obligation I had was to drink fancy wines and talk to the most brilliant people in the world once a week over dinner. And it allowed me to do the kind of research without any of the pressure of a tenure clock uh, to take chances, which eventually led. And it really, I, as I trace back the luck, I can think of how different everything could have been had Robert Nozick not interceded and said it was okay for me not to have a unifying theme. So anyway, you, so does this uh, book have a unifying theme? Uh, I don't think, I don't, you guys could probably tell us better than we can. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. We, when we sat down to write the first book, um, what we had largely was a stack of Levitt's papers from 12 or 15 years of research. And so we thought about how to make a book out of that on a few levels, which are probably, it's probably boring to talk about for anyone other than a writer, and I'm gathering there aren't that many writers here, so I won't go into, but one had to do with the way the stories go together, and the other kind of had to do with the way themes related to each other. And so themes in a book are quite obvious. So we could have sat down and made a book with chapters that were about, you know, intentions and incentives and, you know, crime and, and these things, or, or even or even fuzzier than crime. And instead, we decided to go exactly the opposite direction. And partly, I, I think we should admit, I mean, we've said it many times before, we'll say it many times again, we were inspired by books like Malcolm Gladwell's uh, The Tipping Point. Malcolm is, you know, a guy we like and admire a great deal. And even though our book is, in some ways, the polar opposite of his books, Malcolm takes one very interesting idea and then assembles a collection of stories to illustrate different pieces of that idea so that by the end, you're convinced or not convinced, whatever the case may be. But that's the idea. You kind of march through the evidence. And we had no central idea whatsoever, nothing around which to cement all these stories. But what we did have from Malcolm was a bit of a roadmap of how you could put together different stories that were short stories and may not relate to each other so much, so obviously, but make them work together. And, and there was another thing uh, that Malcolm did very, very well that a lot of writers do now, including in our books, which is create a different kind of interactivity for the reader. So when I first read Tipping Point, my favorite bit of it was, I'll, I'll probably get wrong exactly what he was trying to accomplish, but do you remember there was a list of names from a phone book? And I think he's trying to prove the point of connectors. Am I roughly right in here? And it was a list of something like 100 or 200 last names from a, a, a real phone book. And you were supposed to go through and just see how many people you in your own life knew who had that last name. How many people you'd met or how many people you knew. And depending on how many you scored, you were either a big connector or a total loser, essentially, if you only knew a few. And what that did, it was amazing. It was a, literally, I mean, you, we joke about how a, a good actor or singer can recite the phone book and have it be art somehow. And in a way, Mal, that's exactly what Malcolm did. He took this piece of telephone book and engaged the reader in a way so you're going through every line, every word, every letter of it to try to get yourself into the way of thinking about what the writer is wanting you to think about. And so to me, I think that while we have no unifying theme of actual content, because there's all this stuff in the first book and in the second book, the unifying theme is kind of the way to look at the world. And as banal and mushy and kind of useless as that sounds, I think that is what we try to do, which is just take the way you're used to looking at the world, whether it's a, 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 a political way or an ideological way or a religious way or moral way, and just put on a kind of different set of lenses, economic lenses, and look at it differently. So I wouldn't call it a theme, but I would call it a unifying outlook, let's say. <laughs> um. I also noticed in, in looking at the book, there's certainly elements that pop up again and again. 
and one that I noticed, that, or I'll take two together. One is there's an element of surprise. You seem to like to spring surprises on your reader. And the other one is that you don't, you aren't shy to take on controversies. You take positions that seem fairly far out, you know, on one end of the spectrum. Are those parts of the theme? Um, so, what does this mean about other people's position? Where do the surprises come from? Is this because other social scientists get it wrong? Well, so, I mean, most of what I study, no one else studies, uh, which has uh, always been part of my game plan, right? So I, I learned very early on. So I got to MIT, uh, and I had taken one math class uh, my first year of college, of university. I had taken a course at Harvard called Math 1A. It was the lowest math class I offered at the university because I had done so, I had failed to learn calculus the first time around. And that's the only math class I've ever taken. Uh, and so in a, in a discipline which is heavily mathematical, when I got to MIT, I was completely and utterly overmatched by my peers. And it was obvious to me and it was obvious to them. Uh, and as a consequence, I very early on decided that if I would ever have any success in this profession, it would be by asking a set of questions that no one else uh, would ever think to ask, right? And I picked it. I did a good job, right, of picking questions that were so degrading and embarrassing that no real economist would want to have their name associated with them. So in some sense, I think you can come up with surprising results because it's not like uh, I'm treading over the same territory that, you know, Keynes and, uh, you know, and Friedman went over, you know, in which case it would have been hard to contribute. Um, but uh, I think the element of surprise, again, relates to storytelling, you know, jokes, stories. Uh, the element of surprise is an important part of that. And we intentionally kind of write things in ways which will uh, lead you down one path, let you kind of, uh, you know, because a, a lot of what I've tried to do in my career is to look for conventional wisdom which don't stand up to the test of data. Okay, And so it's easy to trick people if you talk about conventional wisdom in the way people usually do and then slowly unravel with the data and show why that conventional wisdom is wrong. I mean, the other thing is I've got lots of papers that confirm conventional wisdom and those are just not that interesting to write about. And so a lot, you know, so there is a selection in that what comes out in the book uh, is the stuff that's inherently more interesting. Yeah, also the surprise stuff, I think, uh, in terms of writing the stories, um, maybe borrows a little bit from one piece of uh, behavioral economics, which, you know, uh, is, in my view, a really interesting way to tell stories, which has to do with framing and anchoring. So, like, you know, these very central ideas of behavioral economics is that we make decisions that are often irrational because the, where we cut so... All right, uh, so a, an economist would think that the way a, a, a situation, the way a set of prices are framed or where it's anchored is going to be very influential on what price you decide is actually an appropriate one or however you might, might make a decision will be influenced very much by where the frame is set or where the anchor is set. And to my mind, that's a lot like, um, you know, Chekhov talked about writing stories. You know, what, one thing that makes Chekhov's short stories so good is unlike a long story, unlike a novel, when you have a short story, you have this arc that's very intense, and you've got the beginning of the actual action, the end of the actual action. But almost never does a good short story writer begin at the beginning of the action and at the end of the action. You want to cut, you know, Chekhov's phrase was, you want to cut into that arc and begin at that arc in the right place where you can give the reader a kind of back weight of evidence without actually having to tell it. So set the tension, establish the kind of wisdom. 
establish the emotion. And then as the story unravels more, you kind of, the reader fills that in. And then when you get to the end, the end is surprising. I also think that, you know, sometimes we do use literally framing devices that are more common maybe in novels or in movies. We just do it in nonfiction. It's so like in the, in the new book, I don't know if anyone's read it here yet, but uh, in, what's the altruism chapter, third chapter, where we start by telling the story of this famous murder in New York City, the story of Kitty Genovese. And then we end with it as well. And I won't spoil the story for those of you who haven't read it to tell you that you learn some things at the end that obviously you, you didn't know at the beginning. And I just feel like it's a, you know, maybe it's a failing of mine uh, as a magazine writer because that is the way you learn to write a magazine story. You begin in a place that is not the very beginning and you want to get to an end that's not where you were expecting at the end, not where you expected to go from the beginning. Hmm. <laughs> You're not buying any of this, are you? I, I'm, I'm buying it. it. It makes sense to me. Um, so we talked about the surprise. Uh, I was trying to get you to talk about the controversy a little bit. Oh, we can, yeah, the, we, we, yeah, we can. Well, let talk, me throw yeah, in another yeah. one with the controversy. Um, you know, Steve Levitt is known to make mistakes, being both shown in your academic papers, and I think people are talking about the contents of your books as well. Um, does it mean we can't trust anything you guys say in Freakonomics, Super Freakonomics? <laughs> So, so I think when you refer to mistakes, you're talking about the abortion and crime stuff. Is that have I made other mistakes? I'm trying to remember. I don't the, remember the police hiring. Oh yeah, that was actually that was actually the worst mistake. That was worse than the uh, that actually was a mistake. Uh, as a graduate, I did make a mistake uh, with my standard errors. That, 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 I've forgotten about that one. It's been a while. But yeah, that was a mistake. The abortion and crime, I wouldn't actually call a mistake. So uh, the paper on abortion and crime, which, which conjectured that the legalized abortion in the um, 1970s in the United States led to a reduction in crime in the 1990s. And, and that was probably, I would say, one of the most scrutinized papers uh, in economics of the last two decades, and uh, we probably gave out our data to uh, over a hundred, uh, uh, over a hundred economists. And, and there was indeed in the very last table there was a programming error in, in, in the last table, which was asked for at the eleventh hour by the editor. But but when we did things more carefully, that kind of stood up to uh, that wasn't a big deal anyway. But but I would say that given the number of papers I've written and the amount of scrutiny, uh, I mean I think you take. You take virtually any economics paper and the amount of decisions and data work that go into it, you very often find, uh, can find mistakes. So I, I don't think I'm uh, uncareful relative to other economists. And, 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 and with reference to the climate, so I know we'll talk more about climate stuff, but, but let's be completely clear that there have been allegations in the blogosphere by environmentalists uh, that we have completely missed the boat on climate science, that we got the science wrong, that the scientists that we are writing about have, have, uh, have, have, uh, have said that we got it, you know, we, we misquoted them, misrepresented them. With it. Anyway, that is just simply not true. Every fact that we have in the chapter on climate science virtually is cited in the, uh, in the, in the, in the end notes. Uh, there is almost no one at this point, I think, who is claiming that we have gotten the facts wrong. Uh, uh, on the chapter. The people who don't like the tone of the chapter, uh, the people who don't like our conclusions, but I do not think that uh, it is fair to say that we have gotten the science wrong. Uh, there are some incredibly minor points. One sentence 
that, that one of the scientists, Ken Caldera, didn't like, which were changing in the revised version to, to add the word may, uh, to the, to the, which at his request, we gave him a copy of the chapter and said, we'll change anything you want. And he asked us to, to, to take out his name, say, instead of saying Caldera's research, to just say research suggests, instead of saying that uh, carbon is not the right building. It, it should also just be said that uh, the phrase, the one, the one phrase that he wants changed. So the one, the one phrase that the one scientist, who's been largely written about as having uh, his work misrepresented in the chapter, he was uh, a participant in these long interviews that we did with a group of scientists. And beyond that, we did what is not always done with with book writing which is asked him and the other scientists to actually read the entire chapter and offer any and all comments, which we incorporated. So then, you know, it became this game of a very strange case of going down a rabbit hole once some climate bloggers decided to attack on the grounds that he had been misrepresented. And it turns out that uh, his version was really quite different, that uh, he, he, he claimed responsibility for having read passages not well enough or not, not yeah. thoroughly enough. And so I, you know, I, I, just for the record, I agree entirely with Levitt. Uh, I, I, we're waiting, uh, and if there's anything factual or even in the spirit of what we write that would be proved to be wrong or wrong-minded, I think we'd, you know, gladly step up and, and address it and change it. That said, we should back up and just say very briefly what the argument is, because I have a feeling that, you know, these conversations in the blogosphere often travel in silos, and they are very noisy within the silo, and they often don't radiate out. The point we we're trying to make in the chapter is this. Global warming may be a really, really bad problem. And if so, it appears that the current solutions on the table, which is primarily uh, carbon mitigation, may not be a viable solution on the grounds that it may be too little and too late and it's too optimistic an approach. So if the problem is large enough to worry about now, which we argue it may very well be, then the solutions on the table, primarily because atmospheric carbon dioxide has a very long half-life, so we could convert, if somehow miraculously, we could convert to a zero carbon society overnight, which of course is impossible, but if we could, the problem would not really be solved from the, from the warming perspective because of the atmospheric half-life of CO2. And so what we put on the, on the table are some solutions that are a variety of solutions that generally fall under the rubric of geoengineering, which are very, which we write in the book are, some of them may be repugnant to uh, certain kinds of environmentalists because they seem to be messing with nature in a way that really just goes against the grain of environmentalism. And yet our argument is if the problem is really worth solving, then we need to consider some solutions like that. And also what's really interesting is the notion of repugnance itself shifts over time. So 200 years ago, it was considered vile and repugnant to have life insurance. The whole notion that someone could profit from, the loved one, from a loved one's death was considered way out of bounds. And of course now, life insurance is, you know, you're considered kind of irresponsible if you don't have it. And so what's repugnant now in terms of a climate change solution that we propose, 10 years from now may very well not be. So that's the core argument of the, uh, of the uh, chapter. But uh, when you get into a topic like uh, global warming about which there's huge emotion and also huge political and financial and, uh, uh, um, you know, almost a kind of, uh, you know, an activist core where, where people feel very, very strongly about it. it. It shouldn't be so surprising that there's been a lot of reaction. What's been surprising us is kind of the level of reaction. And I think just following up on what Stephen said, I mean, what's interesting when you read the climate science 
and then look at the conclusions people come to is that really uh, the, the, the scientific, uh, we are taking the science as given, just as the climate scientists are building. And what climate scientists often then do is embed that science with a sense of moralism about what we owe to future generations. Okay, and, and that's a really is a dose of climate science with a dose of ethics and morality that leads to a conclusion. What we do is we take the climate science and we put it together with economics, which is uh, to try to answer what's, I think, an easier question, which is if you had to cool the earth down in a real hurry, what would be the cheapest way to do it? Okay, and that's not the question that the climate scientists are talking about. That's not what the public debate has been about. And yet, it really is something that you want to know because if we come to a point where because of the, uh, you know, the in incredibly difficult problem of trying to get global cooperation. So we're going to need the Chinese and, and the Indians to all get together and say we want to radically reduce carbon dioxide. Uh, the fact that nothing has happened since Kyoto, you know, in a decade uh, suggests that this is a hard problem uh, and that even if we stop now, uh, we could have trouble. And there's tremendous cost. I mean, left out of of the climate debate is the fact that we are talking about to reduce carbon, the estimates are something like, you know, one to two percent of GDP every year from now into the future. That's a lot of money, okay? And if there are cheaper ways to do it, if not even to solve the problem, because the, the, the sort of geoengineering solutions we're talking about are not fixes. They're kind of like band-aids. Uh, they're ways to bide your time so that uh, as technology progresses so we can pull carbon out of the air more effectively, uh, we end up having, a, a, we can keep the earth cool in the meantime while we come up with some better solutions. I mean, I think that's the way, you, the spirit you'd want to look at it. And, and if, you, if, you, if, if you take away the emotion of it, it just seems hard to argue with investments in this kind of knowledge. Whether or not we ever use them, uh, the R&D costs are so low relative to the potential benefits that it's very strange to me uh, how one can be demonized for proposing these kinds of solutions uh, when it just seems to an economist and to almost every economist who's looked at the problem comes the exact same collusion that we should be investing heavily in these, in these mm -hmm. kinds of solutions. You've been doing great. You know, I had a bunch of questions prepared, and you always manage to answer the next one before I ask it. That's so, because we can see we your see paper. Yeah. Out, you know. <laughs> so, you know, my list is done. I think we should throw it open to the audience and get some questions from them. Let's see. Get somebody. Three some microphones. Here. I think here's microphones coming from the back. Your idea about uh, climate change solutions is very interesting, but how would you put that idea into a story to make it interesting for people to read? Chapter five. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, the answer is in chapter five. And, uh, but, but actually putting it in story form actually uh, got some people upset too. And uh, by that I mean we began the chapter in the 1970s when there was this brief anxious period when scientists were concerned with not global warming but global cooling. And it was not the same environment, not the same science, not the same... Not the same feel at all of what's going on today. It was a, not a, the same degree of consensus. Yeah, not, yeah, and very little research done on it, frankly. But what really happened was that uh, in the 70s, and then going on, um, we started cleaning up our air through different clean air acts around the world and so on. It turns out that all that junk, all that heavy particulate pollution that had gone into the air from our manufacturing was actually cooling the earth. Um, and the evidence of that is kind of getting stronger now by the year, which actually, interestingly, um, we were accused of... Um, hyping the fact that the world had cooled 
30 years ago and therefore may again, which was not our intention at all. What it actually may show, that cool, that brief cooling period, uh, that cooling period of the 70s, was that the warming we should be even more concerned about. Because if there was cooling then as a result of the artificial, of the particulate in the air, once that's cleaned up, the rate now could accelerate more so as we do clean up more particulate. But in terms of the story of geoengineering, we actually do tell it in a form that's built around characters. I mean, that's something that we try to do repeatedly is, so we tell stories of people in the book who do interesting things and have interesting thoughts. And Levitt kind of gets left out of a lot of these. So even though he's an originator of a lot of these studies, or at least a co-author on the studies, in the new book, there are stories about prostitution with a researcher named Sudhir Venkatesh. There's a story about Dr. Skill and who's a good doctor or a bad doctor in the emergency room. There is a story set right here about trying to catch terrorists by using retail banking data that uh, centers around a, um, a, a UK uh, banker. And a bunch of other stories in which Levitt actually did a lot of the, the analysis and work as well, but we leave him out since he's an author. And we build these stories around the researchers and the characters and the people who are thinking these thoughts. In the case of geoengineering, there's this group of very, very unusual, very bright, very interdisciplinary, very motivated people at a company called Intellectual Ventures in Seattle, um, founded by a couple former Microsoft guys. And they basically collected a group of um, science geeks and brainiacs who work in everything from medicine, computers, to climate change. And they basically looked around and said, we're working on all these things having to do with the inputs, with energy. They have all these projects about a better nuclear reactor, better batteries, better solar power. So they were working on all the energy solutions that, thankfully, people around the world are working on. They also said, wait a minute. What if, even if we get to all this in 15 or 20 or 50 years from now, what if it's too late? What if the heat is a problem? And that's when the climate scientists and the astrophysicists and the engineers and the, uh, you know, the guys who built uh, Star Wars systems said, what if we can collaborate to try to find a way to cool the Earth if need be? So that's, that's how we came to the story of global cooling, global global warming, and finding a way to cool the earth. You made up characters, fictional uh, characters. We didn't. No, they're not fictional. They're real. I can. We'll give you their phone numbers afterwards if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. They're, uh, yeah, there's nobody fake in the book. The only uh, the only things not real in the book. We had to change the names of uh, I think two people. Uh, the British banker. Uh, for reasons that are very obvious once you read it, and uh, a high-end call girl for reasons that are also quite obvious. Yeah. Although I'll give you her number as well. She's always looking for... Uh... What made you decide to include the theme of Chapter 5 in the book? So Chapter 5 is about, um, is about the global warming. Uh, well, I think all of the... So, Maybe a broader question, why do we write about anything? Why do we include anything? And I think it comes down to um, where we think we have something interesting to say about an issue. And in particular, what, what I had been increasingly uh, been a consumer of the climate science research, and, and very few economists have really been engaged in thinking about it. And, and the, more, the more I began to, to, to read this literature, the more uh, sort of surprising I found the, the, the almost universal policy prescription, which was that uh, carbon mitigation was the right answer, because it wasn't just me, but, but the economists that I respected, all of us independently were coming to this conclusion that it just didn't seem right uh, and, uh, to us. And so I think that's where, you know, I think, uh, it, 
I felt like it was a very interesting story because it's important, it's relevant, uh, and I really felt like it was a way to showcase how economists think differently about questions in some sense than do uh, than do other, you know, even the climate scientists. And so, uh, you know, uh, so in the sense of, was it, did we have a political agenda or something? Absolutely not. Are we deniers? No, not at all. Uh, I, I really do think, though, that unlike much of what we write about, which has no policy implications, uh, I think getting climate, you know, getting climate change right matters, right? Okay, so it either matters because the world as we know it is, you know, going down the tubes and we got to do something to solve that problem, uh, or it matters because, you know, it's not that big a threat and we're going to be spending 2% of GDP on that when we could be spending 2% of GDP on, you know, finding a cure to cancer or solving poverty or something else. And so, you know, I don't think, I, I don't know the answer on that. I mean, we don't really take a, you know, a stand on the climate science. We go with what the climate scientists say. But I, but I think that uh, that, you know, that makes it sort of intrinsically more interesting than much of what we write about. Uh, but it is different. It's a different kind of yeah, capital. The, the, the one really essential, essential way in which it's different, which again was appealing, but which made it, gave it, the reason it comes at the end of the book and the reason it kind of follows the flow that it does is it's the one chapter that we've ever written that doesn't have to do with the past, it has to do with the future. And so, you know, basically, you know, one could argue with conclusions that we've written about anything from prostitutes to real estate to, you know, gang wars and crack selling and all this stuff. But, you know, it's something that happened in the past and for which there was a lot of data and we can look at those data and try to describe what happened. The very reason that this problem is so troubling is because, A, it takes place in the future. B, we know that predicting the future in any realm is really, really hard, even with really good models. As we look, you know, we're sitting barely a year removed from a point when financial models that were thought to be as reliable, if not more so, than climate models turned out to be really not so good. And so looking at the future, even with very sophisticated science, turns out to often be far more difficult than one thinks. The biggest factor, though, is uncertainty. The future inherently leads to uncertainty. And we write a little bit about this in the book, probably could have done more. One reason it's so troubling to so many people is because uncertainty itself makes us kind of uh, not, necessarily, not necessarily irrational, but we bring more emotion to the decisions. So it was an opportunity to try to address a topic that inherently lies in the future for which there exists, therefore, great uncertainty, but try to take a step and to say, well, okay, even assuming a very small probability of great catastrophe, what do you do here and now? So I think that a reason why some people are upset by it is because it is a different nature of chapter rather than describing a group of people's behavior that we can kind of write down the numbers and show exactly what they did and therefore what it means. It's a totally different um, enterprise, but again, because the stakes were high, because the stakes are high on the topic, I felt I think that's what compelled us to, you know, take a shot at it, really. Okay, should we get a question from upstairs, maybe? <laughs> Over there in the back row. How are you choosing? How are you deciding who to pick on here? Oh, <laughs> randomly, of yeah, course. Yeah. Hi. Um, you talked about that in a lot of cases, uh, your analysis actually proved that conventional wisdom is true. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, a case or two where conventional wisdom is actually uh, descriptive of how things actually are. Sure. Um, so uh, one is one where I've done research is on, on drunk driving. So it turns out that 
going over the data and building models, I found that a drunk driver is about 13 times more likely to cause a fatal crash uh, relative to a sober driver. And those numbers actually turn out to be quite similar to the kinds of numbers that uh, people, uh, you know, researchers had found before, although my methods were, were somewhat different. Uh, the same is true of seatbelts. So I, I've looked at the efficacy of seatbelts, and it turns out that seatbelts are, uh, uh, are extremely effective, and that's something that previous researchers had found. Now, still in the area of traffic, uh, it turned out, well, coming up with these two pieces of uh, research which support the conventional wisdom, I also stumbled onto two things that were somewhat more surprising. Uh, the first of these uh, relate to drunk walking. Okay? It, it turns out that walking drunk, according to our estimates, is eight times as dangerous as driving drunk. Okay, so if you have, you know, if you get drunk at a party and you have to walk a mile, and it's even exaggerated in urban settings, uh, you are eight times or more likely to die uh, walking home drunk as opposed to driving home drunk. Now, obviously, you're not going to kill anybody else walking home drunk. Or you really have to work hard to do it, at least. Uh, but, uh, but even when you factor in the risk that you pose to others of driving drunk, the total number of deaths per mile walk drunk is five times as high as the total miles, uh, the total number of deaths per uh, mile driven drunk. Now, I don't, of course, I don't need to tell you that I'm not endorsing drunk driving, uh, but uh, but I'm also it's important to you know it's like not an important policy, but a thousand people a year die walking drunk in the United States. It's not a trivial number, uh, and you should think about that the next time. Either don't drink so much or sleep over, do something, but uh, get a taxi, uh, but don't go, uh, especially in London where people are getting hit by cars all the time. It's probably a terrible place to walk drunk. I'll tell you another another piece of conventional wisdom, which didn't turn out to be true uh, in, in this area. As I studied seatbelts, I stumbled onto this interesting fact that it did not look like children's car seats uh, were any more or much more, just a little teensy bit more effective than adult seatbelts. Okay? And, and this is a shocking uh, 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 realization to many people. Uh, and not everyone agrees with it, I'll say. There's some competing research that finds a different result. But really, if you just take 30 years of crash data, it looks like car seats just aren't that good. And that's a case where once you start thinking harder, right, we've all been so indoctrinated into the idea that car seats are the answer to you know, every ill under, on, on, you know, on the planet. Uh, but once you start thinking about the actual mechanism, so you know, what do you have? You have a seatbelt that's designed for adults, Okay, and then you're going to have 50 different car seat manufacturers uh, have to build car seats that have to fit into every different kind of vehicle. And you're going to string the adult seat belt through the back of this thing, and it's going to turn out to be so complicated that parents can't figure out how to put this in correctly. Like, the more you think about it, the more you think, why would people think that that would be a particularly good solution to keeping kids safe? As opposed to, say, starting from scratch and integrating the car seat right into the seat, you know, where the auto manufacturer is responsible for it. So, you know, the more, you, the more I thought about that, the more it became reasonable to me to think that there are good theoretical reasons why car seats are, no, are not much better than adult seatbelts. Uh, among the other reasons is that when we actually ran crash tests and put crash test dummies, little children crash test dummies, uh, with car seats and with seatbelts, it turned out that the seatbelts passed every U.S. government regulation about what a car seat had to do. So if you didn't tell the government that you had a, a kid in an adult seatbelt and you sent them the data, it'd say, this is a great new car seat, feel free to market it. Okay? And once you know that's the case, is it surprising at all that car seats are no better than, the, or very little better than adult seatbelts uh, in protecting kids? Okay, let's have a question over here. Hi, um, my question was, uh, relating to your global warming chapter still, um, are you worried about 
unintended consequences at all. For example, it's one thing in Seattle to be, you know, zapping mosquitoes with a laser. It's another thing to be, you know, pumping a bunch of sulfur dioxide up in the atmosphere. And also, when you said that little thing about global cooling, I, I read that you mentioned a few news articles, but can you prove that there was a consensus back in the 1970s that said, you know, that said that worried about global cooling, or were they just a few, you know, fringe? So, yeah, the, oh, so oh. you take you take the second one. I'll take the first. Okay. One. Yeah, the news. You're right. We we um, we quoted what we quoted was news articles from uh, Newsweek and the New York Times, but they were actually citing an NAS report, National Academy of Sciences report. So there were, there was science on it, and it turns out that the science was even though it was not what we now think of as a consensus about global ground temperatures. I mean, for a variety of reasons, there just weren't that there weren't that many climate scientists. They weren't working with the, anywhere near the amount of data that they're working with now. They knew less than they do now. Um, that said, they considered the problem significant enough to come up with, in the 1970s, their own geoengineering solutions, including, it sounds insane, uh, spreading black soot over the polar ice cap to help melt it. That's how, that's how different the idea was then. That said... There's nothing in that writing or nothing in our writing to suggest that there's kind of a parallel between uh, consensus about warming now and cooling then. Right. I think that I think that the point of that storytelling about that episode uh, partly was the, the you know it, it's interesting right because I, I guess probably none of you but very few of you in this audience had ever heard of that of that episode and I think it is useful. Uh, from the perspective, there is enormous amounts of uncertainty about climate science. Uncertainty could be on the side of getting it wrong by being, uh, you know, overly zealous and saying the world's about to explode, or the uncertainty could be on the other side, is that the world is literally about to, you know, about to explode, and we aren't, our models haven't captured all the feedback loops, which will exaggerate things. Now, um, the, the first part of the question had to do with unintended consequences, okay? And uh, obviously there are uh, risks when you start playing with uh, the global environment. There are, of course, risks to not playing with the global environment. We don't live, we do not and will not live in a world which has pre-industrial levels of carbon. The world is changing. It's changing because of man's intervention. To say that we shouldn't try to change it in a more determined way is I think to be blind to the idea that we're changing it anyway, and as long as we're changing it, let's at least try to change it in a way that's productive. So what is the benefit of these kinds of uh, geoengineering solutions that we propose? One of them is, is injecting uh, sulfur dioxide into the, into the stratosphere. Uh, there are two obvious, in addition to being very cheap, okay, and being able to do it very quickly and to feel the results right away, that we could cool the globe, uh, I think the scientists would agree that we could cool the globe dramatically uh, 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 within, a, you know, within, you know, within a year or two, if we put our mind to putting sulfur dioxide up there, the, the, the two keys I have not mentioned are the following: one is that we have a certain sort of natural experiment that that informed us about this exercise, and that is the eruption of volcanoes. That when big volcanoes like Mount Pinatubo explode, uh, Mount Pinatubo explode in 1991, they inject enormous amounts of sulfuric ash into the atmosphere, most of it into the troposphere, which is just a, uh, not good at all. It's, it's bad for everybody, acid rain, etc. But also some of it gets into the stratosphere and it, and it cools the earth. So we have a certain kind of model for what's happened. Uh, the second is that the beauty of these kinds of interventions from the perspective of learning is that, number one, you can do it very quickly. You see the results very quickly. And number two, if you decide that it's not working, 
Okay? Initially, you just stop injecting the sulfur dioxide, and within about a year or two, all the sulfur dioxide has come down, and you're back onto the path you were before. Now, the flip side is, if you do this for 50 years or 75 years, and you keep on pumping carbon in the air, then if you suddenly, because of, say, you know, the machine, the pump breaks or something, and you can't get a pump, uh, you, you, they don't make the pump anymore, say, and so you can't get the sulfur dioxide up there, then you're in real trouble, right? That is the biggest risk you have, is that then you're going to get a heating of the earth that is absolutely unprecedented, I mean, off the charts. And so, obviously, if you commit to this path, you, you want to commit to the path of, you know, trying to figure out ways to get carbon dioxide out of the air so that you don't, don't become dependent on it. I mean, this is, a, a, you know, a, I would equate these kinds of solutions are like methadone. Like, gingering is methadone to the heroin addict, okay? And that is not us. It doesn't get at the root causes, but, you know, look, you can be a heroin. If the choice is like dying of heroin addiction or being addicted to, to methadone, well, you'd rather be addicted to methadone. It would be better to just get off everything altogether. But if you don't have the, the political will or the, uh, you know, the ability to do that, uh, I think it is something that, that, that you can do. But, so the, the key is reversibility. Okay, and learning quickly. And those are incredibly important uh, elements. And they're elements that are missing from the carbon mitigation strategy. Because we can cut carbon now, and we won't really know what's going to happen for another 40 or 50 years. We won't be able to learn and adjust very quickly. Yeah, the other, the other key to the SO2 is that the amount that would be uh, intentionally put into the stratosphere is very small relative, relative to a volcano, certainly, because a volcano, you know, you might think, hey, if Pinatubo, uh, um, you know, cooled the earth, let's just, you know, blow up a volcano every two years, right? And that would be very messy for any number of reasons, including the fact that as a delivery system for SO2 into the stratosphere is extremely inefficient. So the plan, this garden hose to the sky plan, calls for basically putting in less than 1% of the amount of SO2 that currently is going into the atmosphere from coal-fired power plants, which goes into the troposphere, where, as Levitt said, it it isn't so good. It falls back more locally as acid rain. And the SO2 that goes into the atmosphere from nature already. I mean, there's a lot of volcanoes that blow up every year around the world. Um, there's, there's SO2 in, uh, you know, the ocean. It's a, it's a naturally occurring substance, obviously. So the point is by using the leverage of physics, essentially, which is why the solution that these guys in Seattle have come up with is a solution that really would have been arrived at only by people like astrophysicists and engineers, because what they, the question that they were answering was a different one, which is, if we want to cool the earth the way a volcano naturally does, how could we do it in a controlled, reversible way that was also taking advantage of the leverage of physics, which is to put it in the right place, and therefore the volume needed would be much less. So the questions of acid rain, would you need to think about that? Absolutely, but the volume would be small enough that that would probably not be the largest danger you're worried about. Not that there aren't larger dangers to worry about. I think we should reward the gentleman yeah, in the front row because no one ever wants to sit in the front row. So we'll repeat your question. We don't need a microphone. We'll just repeat uh, your question. My, my question is, uh, a lot of the stuff you write about has a big effect on public policy. Uh, the quality of debate on public policy on both sides of the Atlantic right now doesn't seem to be very high. Um, what can you do, what can we all do to improve the quality of that debate? And I guess the answer isn't read the New York Times every week. <laughs> okay, so let me repeat the question for people here. So uh, uh, the first conjecture was that uh, our work has a big effect on public policy. False. Okay, which is false. I was going to get that. Uh, the, the, the second one should oh should have. Okay, that's oh I like that. That's uh, okay. And, and but the, the current uh, quality of the public debate on both sides of the Atlantic doesn't seem very high. What can we do about that? 
Um, you know, I think the nature of politics, so I do want to say something. I think that what we do in Freakonomics and Superfreakonomics has had almost zero effect on, I, I have a hard press to think of any public, there's one little teeny minor public policy that uh, that we were told might yeah, have effect, so but we, we, we don't really affect One politics. city in California decided to use our chapter about how, how uh, poorly paid crack dealers are to preach to their urban youth that they should not uh, deal crack. <laughs> So what, I think the nature of political debates, right, political debates end up not being about facts. So through my entire career, whenever politicians have come to me wanting to use my research, uh, they have always come to the position they want to be first and then searched in the research to see what supported it. And it didn't, the quality of the research wasn't that important. I think that the, to change, so here's one thing which would be risky. You talk about unintended consequences. It's my own belief that if economists were allowed a bigger role in public policy debates, uh, you would have a different kind of debate. Now, you might have, I mean, a society run by economists would be a crazy, uh, very frightening kind of uh, uh, world, okay? But on the other hand, I don't think it would hurt, okay, on the margin, to push a little more economics into into the decision-making. And, and, and as you like to point out, in, in a lot of developing nations, uh, People come, they study, they get PhD economics, and then they go back and they essentially uh, become presidents of the country around the country. And it's interesting because it would never happen. I don't see how that could happen uh, in in uh, in the United States. Uh, I don't know about the UK, but the United States it would just never happen. But uh, economists have the virtue of largely focusing on the facts and trying to you know trying to get consistent models of how things work. Now there are other models that were also useful. I, I just think that. Um, that the political model, the partisan model, uh, is it just does not. I don't think the debate. I don't think that the, ten, the level of debate is any worse now than it was in the past. I think uh, it's just the nature of debate. Unless you have a truly uh, sort of uh, visionary leader uh, who kind of is above, who, who, who's, who's uh, benevolent and intelligent in a way that uh, he or she can rise above the battle and, and do the right thing. Um, but I think those are rare, uh, rare and hard to find. Okay, had a question in front. How about there? I have a question for uh, Professor Levitt. How um, how long do you sp you seem to do a lot of uh, research on many different topics? I was wondering how long do you spend on each research topic, and also do you have a like a to do list of uh like topics you'd like to get around to? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a good question. So I, what I do tend to do is work on a lot of topics at once. So I would, when I try to tell you, if I'd say at any given time I might have 25 research projects going at a time. Now, obviously you don't make very much progress on any of them, right? It's like if you work on each of them one day a month, that's your whole month. Uh, and so uh, as a result, my projects tend to, to, to you know, drag on endlessly. Um, so... Uh, but, you know, I, my goal would be probably when I'm, you know, is to try to write something like six to ten ac academic papers a year. And so, you know, if you kind of weigh it all out, it's, you know, something like a, a month of my time. Now, I have co-authors and, and they spend a lot of time. Uh, and I have research assistants who help as well. Uh, do I have a, a, a to-do list? You know, I have two kinds of to-do lists. Uh, I have the to-do list, which is, 
the 22 projects which I'm working on uh, in principle, but I haven't thought of in the last two or three weeks, and I wish if I had infinite amount of time I could push those all along. But, but the more important to-do lists are the set of questions which I've, uh, ideas I've had but haven't been able to answer, either because I couldn't find the right data or couldn't think of how to solve the problem. And that's the to-do list which is just inside my head, which is all the really good stuff that, that you know, 99% of those will never, ever be solved. But, you know, on the rare, rare occasion where I get a breakthrough on those, that's where, you know, that's where I get really, really excited. Okay. How about over there? Um, economics has had a rather hard time over the last year. Um, what do you think can be done to reconnect the public with uh, the social science? Well, you know, I think, you know, at the risk of offending uh, people in the room who are macroeconomists, I think that um, macroeconomics is just an incredibly demanding set of questions. That that the complexity of the system that generates macroeconomic fluctuations is, in many ways, I think, in my mind, beyond what we really, uh, uh, the expertise that we have. Um, and most of the public persona of economics is uh, about macroeconomics, right? And, and macroeconomics isn't just complicated. Um, uh, it, it's not just complicated, you say, because policymakers don't understand things. It's because you know you have players like big banks, where like one rogue trader can can create enormous amounts of risk and destabilize the entire system. And you just can't write down models that can can effectively incorporate that. So, in that regard, I think um, you know it would. My belief is that macroeconomics has always been on tenuous footing, as as a means of describing in a forward-looking way, what's going to happen to the, uh, the economy. Okay? So uh, I think just an admission of that by economists, which is not something that, okay, look, economists don't want to admit that we don't have the answers. It's, uh, it's, it's not the way we operate. But I think uh, in, in some sense our hand was forced, right? The, 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 the events of the last uh, year and a half have forced economists to come to terms with that. So uh, I think one thing it has done is it's refocused macroeconomists on moving away from there has been, a, I, I, again, I'll probably offend the macroeconomists, but I think there's been an unhealthy tendency for macroeconomists to get uh, caught up in the, math, in the mathematics of the problems, right? To build uh, complicated models built from micro foundations which are very elegant but don't necessarily correspond because of the complexity of the system, what we're observing. And, and I think that there might be a healthy move away from some of those models towards just trying to be more descriptive in what we do, to not think that really macroeconomics is a science, uh, but to think of it as something uh, more, more, more descriptive. Um, that being said, um, I think that another way to boost uh, economics in the idea in the minds of, of the public is is to make the ideas in macro I'm sorry in microeconomics right about individual behavior. I think those we understand better. There's tremendous amounts of interesting research uh, out there, and finding ways like our books to communicate those ideas. And Tim Harford's column I think would be in books are another great example of getting those ideas out in the public where they could be useful. And I think also teaching. Uh, I think teaching uh, younger people, you know, junior high students, uh, you know, secondary students, teaching them the basics of microeconomics would be a very valuable thing. I think that, uh, I, I think that those kind of tools for analyzing the world, uh, um, if, we, if we more broadly spread them, could, could, benefit, uh, could benefit society. 
Okay, maybe we'll take one more question before we wrap up. Maybe all the way in the back, in the middle. Thank you. I wanted to ask uh, Professor Levitt how he avoids data snooping. How I what? Avoid data snooping. Oh, data snooping. Well, that's, you know, I, uh, I think that economists don't avoid data snooping. I think uh, uh, how would, in, in the idealized scientific method, what you do is you create a hypothesis, you write down exactly what tests you're going to do on the data, you hit, you know, return uh, on your program, the results come up and you write them up as is. And that's simply, for better for us, not the way economists uh, do the results. You generate hypotheses. Sometimes, you know, you look at the data first. Sometimes you, you learn, right? You can learn from looking at the data. So uh, I think, uh, uh, so I guess I don't know if I want to, so I don't think data snooping is necessarily a complete negative. Now, obviously, what you don't want to do is have a rule of thumb, which is you generate a hypothesis and you play with the data until the data confirm that hypothesis. Okay, that is the wrong way to do. A lot of some people do research that way, uh, but you know we have strong incentives in our profession not to do that, right? Because because people will come, especially if you're whole pro high profile, and they'll try to you know try to rip holes in what you do. And so so ultimately, I think as an economist, uh, what I try to do is I try to embed my data analysis in sensible theories, and I try to be as transparent as possible, uh, and I try to test as many of the secondary and tertiary predictions of the models I have in mind, because if you can really have, if you have nine predictions of a model and eight out of nine work, uh, you can be much more confident you're on the right path than if you have a, a model that has, you know, one prediction and it works, or if you have a model that has nine predictions and only three work. And so if I have a model that makes nine predictions and only three work, uh, you usually never see that paper because it just, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not going to, to cut it. May I ask one final question? Sure. Professor Levitt, <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the book, um, my children are there. Um, come, just cover that. Yeah, 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 thank yeah. you, sweetie. Um, <laughs> concerns Allie, the high-priced prostitute at the end of chapter one. You can uncover now. Um, Tell me, how did you meet her? <laughs> One of the benefits of writing a book like Freakonomics is that we have a lot of reader input. Uh, people would uh, 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 contact us. And so, um, so it turns out um, that, that um, someone uh, who I know... Uh, happened to meet uh, this high-priced call girl and, and visited her apartment where she did her activities. And much to uh, his surprise, it turns out that sitting on the coffee table was a copy of Freakonomics, okay? And so when he explained to her that I was doing research uh, on the subject, uh, collecting data, she emailed me the next day and said, I, I'm a high-priced call girl uh, in the city of Chicago. Uh, and um, I learned from a mutual acquaintance of ours about your new research agenda, uh, collecting data in Chicago, and I wonder, uh, I have a Palm Pilot with all the information that all the clients have ever served. Is that the kind of information you were hoping to collect? <laughs> and I said, absolutely, that's exactly the kind of data I'm trying to collect. So she said, well, 
uh, why don't we meet for brunch on Saturday? And I said, great, I'll see you there. Now, I have a wife and four young children, and I had to explain to my wife that uh, it was the, the prostitute was calling me, not vice versa. She was the one who wanted to meet. And uh, my wife is understanding. She uh, approved of my going to meet this fascinating woman. So it turns out she had a college degree. She was a computer programmer. She was making $80,000 a year working for a major company and decided that dropping out of the, the workforce and being a prostitute was a better career path. And uh, she used her computer programming skills to build a website. And within just a few months, she was charging $300 an hour, uh, and she was earning uh, $200,000 a year working just you know 10 or 15 hours a week, and she could not have been happier. So we... Uh, so we met, and it only took about 10 minutes to discuss the data issues, but here we were for a whole brunch. Okay, so what am I going to talk to her about for the next 35 minutes? So uh, being socially awkward, the only thing I could think about to talk to her was about economics. So I started asking her all these questions about, about the economics of her, of, of her business, and she gave really good answers, impressive answers. Uh, until I asked her about how she chose what price to charge. Because it turns out uh, one of the hardest choices that uh, any business makes is deciding what price they should charge for their product. And she, she just shrugged her shoulders and said, I, don't, I didn't know what to charge. I just looked at what the other women on the Internet were charging, $300 an hour, and I charged the same thing. So I, so I asked myself, so what, you know, what question could I ask her which could tell me if she was charging the right price? Okay? And finally I hit on it. It turns out that there's, uh, uh, she has a dedicated phone line uh, that only her clients call her on. And I asked her, how do you feel when the telephone rings? Okay? And she thought about it. She said, well, I'm pretty much indifferent. I don't care if the phone rings or not. Okay? Any of your economics majors, you'll be able to do that she can't possibly be charging a high enough price. Okay, because she's got a downward sloping demand curve, which means she's restricting demand and marking up over, over her marginal cost. And so she should want, if she could sell one more unit at the same price, she'd want to sell that unit. The fact that she was indifferent between doing it or not meant that she wasn't charging a high enough price. Okay? I tried to explain it to her. I don't think I was any more uh, cogent when I explained it to her than I was to you. She had no idea what I was talking about. But look, I wasn't there to maximize her profits. I was just trying to get her fall by it. So uh, I loved it that. Anyway, so I thought, you know, I thought that was it. Uh, you know, we, we, we left. And, and then I teach to the undergraduates of the University of Chicago, of course, on economics of crime. And as I began to study prostitution, I thought, well, I should add a lecture to this course. But it's not easy to write a good lecture. And I struggled to try to make it a good lecture. And finally, I said, what am I doing? Why don't I just call up? Ellie, my friend, and have her guest lecture for me. That will solve all my problems. And she knows a lot more about prostitution than I do, uh, and I won't have to write the lecture. So I called her up, and I asked her if she'd do it, and she said, oh, no, I'm a very private person. I'm, I'm not a good public speaker. Okay, but like journalists and like economists, I know with prostitutes, it's all about prices. You've got to get to the right price. I just had to, had to figure out what it was. So, so I said, well, what if I pay you your hourly wage? She said, oh, my hourly wage, I didn't understand what you were talking about. For my hourly wage, I'd be delighted to come uh, give your lecture. <laughs> and uh, indeed she came, and she gave an unbelievably great lecture. A third of my students said it was the single best lecture they saw in four years at university. Which <laughs> okay? is a pretty sad statement about what me and my peers are doing in the classroom. But honestly, I have to agree, it was an unbelievable lecture. And, um, and um, uh, so... One of the, uh, uh, so I don't know if I told you, so did I, did I not say, so anyway, so she charged $300 an hour, so that's what she had told me when I met her, and that's what, uh, but, but in the negotiations uh, for price, I just, you know, I, I was trying to be delicate, I hadn't said anything about, about the price, I just said I'd pay her hourly wage. 
So then the Q&A session, one of the students says, well, how much do you charge? And she says, $400 an hour. Okay? And I'm absolutely furious because, you know, I, I was trying to be, you know, delicate with her and did, like, respect her privacy and whatnot by, like, not quoting a dollar value and make this some kind of, like, market transaction. And then she just lies to the students and says that she charges $400 an hour. I'm thinking, you cannot trust a prostitute about anything. Like, I thought we had this relationship together of trust. And here it turns out she's lying. And what am I? It's not like I can charge this to, like, uh, you know, to the National Science Foundation, right, and say, you know, I'm paying this right out of my pocket. You know, it's like, I, you know, you can't say to them, oh, well, it's, I, I'm too lazy to teach my own lecture, so I hired a prostitute. <laughs> so I'm sitting over where Steve is sitting, absolutely furious, okay, just fuming. And the next student raises her hand, and, and, and she says, how did you decide how much to charge? And she turns to me, Ellie does, with this big beaming smile on her face. And she says, well, the first time I was with Professor Levitt. He... <laughs> she says, the first time I was with Professor Levitt, he convinced me my services were far more valuable than the $300. I raised my price to $400, and it has been the best thing that ever happened. So on that note... Thank you uh, very much. Uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you.